I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, I'm going to talk about Power Project, Netflix's new film starring Jamie Foxx and some other people. Okay, so the day I'm recording this section of it, you know how I do. If you've listened before, maybe you're new, I tend to record this in in parts because I'm busy. Um, And anyway, so the time I'm recording this, Meg the Stallion, whom at this point, again, if you're new, you don't know, but if you listened at all, you already know, I am a fan of Meg the Stallion. I wouldn't call myself a hottie or a I don't I was about to say stallion but I don't think they call I don't think her stands are called stallion. Anyway, I appreciate her music. I don't love all of it, but I appreciate her as an artist. I have I just appreciate her. Anyway, so she released maybe 10 hours ago and I'm late to the party, but 10 hours ago cuz I I was working 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 today. And I go on Twitter for the first time in, I think, all day, to be honest with you. And this was like in the, like, not an hour ago from the point where I'm recording this. So for me, that is, that's a minute. That means I was real busy all day, which I was. I was in virtual conferences and and having meetings and things like that. So it was just, I was busy. Anyway, so I go on and you know how, you know how some, some people you follow, they'll like, make a comment as if you already know what they're talking about, but they won't explain what they're talking about. It's one of those things. Everybody has you, if you know, you know, people in their, in your, in your, on your, in your team, in your um, sphere of influence. There's always one. Everybody has at least one person who begins talking about a thing as if you already know about it and won't give you any context clues. And then, you know, a bunch of other people, depending on who's, who you're in company with, a bunch of other people will begin to talk as if they already know. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But if you're like me, you're sitting there like, what are you talking about? I need details from the beginning. But in social, on social media, there's this weird thing where, you know how it goes. Like you have, you have friends who you know in real life, and then you have, you have friends that you know on social media. And then there are bystanders that are always kind of in and around your conversations and your friends' friends' conversations. And so, you know, the whole bullying piece comes into play. We're like, oh, you ain't know? Oh, see, I thought everybody knew. And I'm like, girl, come on, come on, call it a day and just like get to it. Give me the details. So anyway, so I start to do my own research because, you know, I'm, I'm just doing my own research. And it doesn't take me too long, my little sleuthing on, on uh, Twitter. And so apparently on IG earlier today, Meg Thee Stallion went live again and she actually told her full story. And up until this point, I've been holding, I've been reserving judgment and saying allegedly because there was nothing, no one corroborated it, not even um, Meg who shot her. And so not only did she go into detail, and I I implore you to watch it, not only did she go into detail in terms of who exactly shot her, but she also talked about the circumstance under which the thing happened. Now, keep in mind, she did allude to what happened earlier, like a month ago when when it first happened, or at least a couple of days after it happened. She did allude to 
the situation rose because she was walking away from something, from a bad situation. She was leaving. She was fleeing. She wasn't necessarily running, but she was leaving the situation when it happened. She did say that from the very beginning, right? So when she logs on this morning on Twitter or on social media, I learned about it on Twitter. Um, when she logs on social media, she flat out says as she is frustrated and she's just kind of sharing the fact she's lamenting the fact that I don't even know if she's lamenting so much as I'm reading into her lament because I'm frustrated as many people who are living, breathing human beings and not warped trolls who are a shell of themselves. You don't blame a person for how they respond when they've been a victim. You can't. You can't. Because even if you've been in the exact same situation, that's not you. That would, that's, this situation is, is all to her, how she responds, not you. And you can't put how you would respond on anyone else. You can appreciate, you can, you can want them to do the very best for them. But at the end of the day, it's their healing. It's their process. It is their journey, not yours, right? That goes with anything. So this morning she says she was shot by Tory Lanes. She identifies Tory Lanes as the person that shot her. She identifies that there were four people in the car with her, her friend, him and his security guard and her and that they were all arguing and that he was in the back seat um he as in Tory Lanez was in the back seat and she removed herself from the situation because she was done arguing she didn't want to argue anymore they were not at Kylie Jenner's house Jenner's house they were very close to her home and she got out And it is at the point where she got out that he was still enraged and drew his weapon and shot her. And that she didn't call the police. No one in the vehicle called the police. The the, the neighbor, the neighbors called the police. And that she didn't say anything and she didn't want to, she didn't want to call the police because at the time, at the moment, and still is, Tensions are very high in the United States about questioning police-involved situations. But if we're being honest, tensions have always been high in the black community about whether or not, excuse me, to, when to engage the police or whether you even should. And she brings up a good point. She says, you know, I was thinking, number one, there are blatant cases of police misconduct where people have been killed for calling them, for, for them coming to you and you end up ki- being killed. And so in that moment, she's like, and some people misread this. And I think at this point, you're just misreading because you're being obtuse. I don't even care if you are a champion for, for Meg. There's something key, cr- key and critical that she said in this moment that it takes some unpacking to, to share, to hear. And once you Once you really, I mean, actually, it doesn't even take any unpacking. It just takes you listening to hear it. I mean, really listening. You know what I mean? Like truly understanding where she's coming from and the totality of what she's saying. And what she said was, you know, I didn't, and I'm paraphrasing, I didn't want to call the police because of all of the negative outcomes that have come from calling the police. And I knew that there uh, there were guns in the car. 
and there were four, there were three people in the car and I didn't want them to be killed or me to be killed because I called the police. Not that he, not that she was protecting him in any way. She wasn't, she was protecting all of them. She wasn't just, how about that? She wasn't just protecting him, but let's be clear. He shot her, but she in that moment was thinking about, well, let me, I I still want to live and I want everybody in that car to live. What a thing to think. It's two, it's twofold. Number one, not wanting to trust the very people that you're not trusting the very people that, that society tells you to trust the department say, trust us. But what we know is that you can't always trust them. You can't. And this is coming from someone who works in the capacity in which I work. My organization works with the police in cooperation in terms of trying to de-escalate situations, right? Not a hostage negotiator, it's in mental health. So trying to help train folks, that's how we work. Trying to help train folks to, uh, police officers, not just folks, police officers, to be able to respond appropriately when a person is having a mental health crisis because in the United States, and I'm talking to black folks in the United States or people of color in the United States, all those, all those little pamphlets where they're telling you how to behave when you're stopped by the police. This, this how I know that all of that is dumb. This how I know that every piece of that is dumb. And I've always known that, but of course more people know that now just because there have been quote unquote people acting right. Who've been shot dead by police anyway. But a person who is in, the, is in the middle of a psychotic break or they're in the middle of hearing, delus- hearing auditory hallucinations, seeing visual hallucinations, they, can't, they ain't stunning you right now. They're not even sure you are real. Or maybe if, the, or, or they know you're real, but like some other things are more pressing things are happening right now. So the best thing that you can do is not make this thing about you and get you some courage, get you some patience to deescalate that thing. There was, there was a, uh, a, um, a situation in Baltimore city yesterday, 40 hour standoff with a guy who was supposedly and I think, it, I think this was true, um, experiencing mental health crisis. And he had a weapon. And after 40 hours, they were able to end the, the situation without him coming to harm, largely because he had a medical emergency that, that required, that it left him defenseless. But the point is, you do what you must do. That is what you're supposed to do. But anyway, so that is how we engage. And so anyway, so the idea that a person responding in a very specific, like behaving and, you know, keeping your hands in sight and all that stuff, all of that goes out of the window if you are dealing with a, with a police officer. And again, whatever you feel about just abolishing it altogether, I'm talking about the system that is in place now. I'm not talking about whether or not it should be. That's not a conversation I care to have right now. In this context... None of that matters because, again, to Meg's point, I feared for my life and the life of the people in the car. Should I call the police? Because I have, we know that there have been situations where women who've been domestic, who've been involved in intimate partner violence have called the police and then they've been arrested. People, people who've been engaged in a domestic, in, in an argument, in an alter, altercation, and they've been victimized have ended up going to jail too. Why? Because 
the officers and the way they're feeling at the moment. I don't really know the perception of the situation and, and, and which is why all of this is just so weird to me, um, that we're not being more careful in the system that we have, that we're just not being more realistic and thoughtful about what it is that we're saying. But anyway, anyway, so Meg is saying in this system that exists in this moment, if I call the police, my fear is that myself and the people that are in that car will be harmed by the police. I'm not calling them. Which it directly speaks to the point of a lot of folks who are saying it doesn't matter how you respond. This system is flawed and broken. And, and many others are saying that this system was flawed from the beginning and it's always been broken and it will never be fixed. So just to get rid of it. And there's a there, 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 and you should listen to that argument because it's rooted in it's rooted in some good stuff and you really need to pay attention to it. But the point is. There isn't a specific way to respond. And so in that moment, even though she was suffering from trauma herself, even though she needed medical attention, she'd rather call the ambulance than call the police. But even when you call the ambulance and you tell them the nature of what happened to you, the police are going to come. Right. So anyway, a neighbor of hers took that dilemma clean out of her hand. And when they called the emergency officials. And the idea that you would have to that you would have to rationalize and and compartmentalize. She literally prioritized the safety of herself and everyone else over the very urgent need that she had to be seek medical attention. And so you hear that and you deduce that she was just protecting him. Something's wrong with you because you're not listening and I need you to improve your, your listening skills, your active listening skills. The other, the other response that I saw on social media was that you began to blame her for snitching. This after over weeks, a month of saying either she made it up totally or that she did something to provoke the situation which is victim blaming and just general. It's like, you know, black women can't catch a break specifically a black woman who is deemed not acting the way that other people want her to act, which I said this on social media the other day in response to something, an episode from, um, from Marsha's plate. And I can't even remember the name of the episode or what they were talking about, but the conversation of policing women's bodies came. Oh, it was, they were talking about WAP. They were talking about WAP, um, Cardi B and, and, and um, Meg's new single. And the conversation about policing women's body came up, bodies came up, and it was a short comp- part of the conversation. The whole, it was like a piece of the whole conversation. But nevertheless, that resonated with me because the reality of it is, I didn't realize how policed my own body was until I went to college. And it wasn't because I was in a women's lit um, program or that I was even in, in a bunch of women's programs. I've already shared this when I was talking about, um, uh, Miss America, when I did the, um, Mrs. America, when I did the, um, review on that, se- that FX series that I didn't, I didn't subscribe to any of that. When I went to college, I was black more than I was anything else. I was a black person. I was a black woman, of course, but I was black. I identified as black and black only because again, I, I shared my background. My background was I was a token and I didn't want to be that anymore. And so I was putting on this 
I was putting on the armor and the, uh, this particular set of armor the way I thought I should have. I armored myself. That's what I mean to say. I, I put on this protection in the way I thought I needed to to go to college to be accepted. And so I completely accepted blackness without even considering my womanness, right? Without even considering my agency to say, do, feel, wear, be, whatever, right? And even to my awakening, when I began to understand, uh, come into my own, and I was still kind of perpetrating in college until, I, I share this again, I didn't really start being myself until I actually moved to Baltimore. I was just too tired to be anything else. I didn't have the patience anymore. It was draining. I recognized the drain, the emotional drain it had to tap dance, to be and please someone else, to be someone else for someone else, right? Someone else's image. Um, and that takes a lot of unlearning and a lot of work and a lot of self-discovery and a lot of hard conversations with yourself and then the backbone to then turn around and show your true self to the people that you care about and be okay if they walk away. That's a whole nother conversation, not getting into that now, but my point is I didn't come into my woman understanding who I was as a woman and a black woman until much later, but I began to under, I began to become awake in college, even though I wasn't engaged in women's programming. I, I mean, I kind of was, but it was still very much, I, I came to understand that even the women's programming I was in was sort of misogynistic and very male focused, which was, I don't know how you do, well, I know how you do that because you just, it's a delusion that you're in. But anyway, when I, I'm getting back to the point, I do this sometimes. If you're, if you're brand new, I, get, I go on tangents because it's just me and there's nobody here to pull me back. So just roll with it. Um, that's why you should be listening to me while you're doing work or something so I can come back and you can listen in and out. <laughs> anyway, um, but um, so my point is, as I was beginning, I was starting on the journey to becoming who I ultimately am now, or at least a version of who I am now. I'm ever evolving just like you should be. Um, I realized that a lot of people had a lot to say about my body and, and how I showed my body. I was made to feel, I was made, and I'm talking about when I say everybody, I mean when I was a child, children were policing my body. Adults were policing my body. When I was a teenager, teenagers were policing my body. Adults were te- policing my body. That's what, I, that's what I remembered. That's what I began to understand. And I can't even tell you how I began to walk to that understanding other than perhaps when the shine wore off on Huey Newton and them and Black Panther uh, Party and realizing that they weren't, as, they weren't uplifting black women like I thought they were. That's, I think that's what the catalyst for me kind of coming into my own was and listening to Angela Davis and recognizing that she was around the movement. She was in the move. She was very much a leader in the movement, but she was not connected to the Black Panthers. And, and, and trying to wrap my brain around why that was. And then toward the end of my collegiate career, or at least my undergraduate, well, I haven't gone to graduate school. So the end of my co- undergraduate collegiate career is when I began to understand, oh, the shine is worn off just a touch. And then it just, it, it was unvarnished and then it was what it was. And I still understood, I was still coming to terms with recognizing that it did a lot of good, but it also was 
not helpful in many ways. And anyway, yeah, so I became to understand how policed my body was. And then when I recognized how much, let me just give you an example of how kids police my body. I developed early. And so I developed breast early and, and sooner than not, I wouldn't say early. I started developing when I was 12, right? A lot of the girls that were around me were late bloomers. And so they were not developed at all. And so we would be in gym and, you know, the, the kickball little balls, you know, what I'm talking about the little kickball, the little red little kickball things. I remember that one of this, one of these little girls put two of them in her shirt and then said, I'm, I was about to say my name. Um, I'm B I'm Bay. I'm Bay just walking around. I'm Bay like in those shirts. And I remember everybody laughing and me laughing because I was embarrassed as hell, but I was dying inside that hurt. I can remember grown men walking, just walking around. I can't even remember walking around talking about, Oh shoot. See, you got a big old butt. And I'm like, why are you talking in, in my mind? I knew it was wrong looking back on it. I'm like, why are you a uh, 20 something, probably 30 something year old person talking about a clear preteens behind the size of a preteens behind. And so what would I do? So I would try to cover up. And then what would, what would my parents do? They would say, okay, so make sure your skirt is long. So you know, you're behind. And so I began to develop this complex to now to the point where I can't tell if I'm just a modest person or I'm doing it because I don't want anybody to say anything about my body. And that's real. And this is a 37 year old woman still saying this, right? It's silly, right? It's silly. And the thing about it is, I think part of me, I am modest, except around my husband, but I am modest and, and actually no, except around my husband and my very closest friends. Outside of them, I'm, I'm a modest person, right? You don't, I, I, in every way, in my personality and all of that stuff. And so I just, when I wear a skirt that someone that doesn't have the figure that I have wears, the first thing I think of is, oh, it's too, like if it's a pencil skirt, I can't wear a pencil skirt like everybody else does. You know why? Because I have a behind, I have a big behind. I have a big behind. And if I tuck my shirt in, like, like someone who doesn't have a big behind will do, it looks different. And because of the way I've move through life, I'm used to people talking about my body in a way that is either making fun of it by saying, Ooh, she got a big old butt. He, 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 as if that's, well, about to cuss, as if that's funny and, and, and no way harms me at all or says, Oh, or lusting after me. It's like, you're either making fun of me or you're lusting after me. And, and, and in, in either case, none of it is wanted. Right. And I know I'm not alone in talking about this. I know I'm not alone. Right. And so, I look back at pictures of myself and I just, and this is me coming to terms with me. I don't care how you feel about this, but I remember looking at pictures of myself and saying, that was a pretty little girl. Why was she so self-conscious about herself? Why did she feel like she had to hide? And I'm getting misty thinking about it. But I look at pictures of myself and I'm just like, if anybody really knew how I felt, I never felt pretty. I never felt wanted. Not wanted. That's not what I mean. I never felt like, I always felt objectified, right? And so I think about the way I have been objectified. And, and, and even my parents, I understood it was a protection thing why they would say, make sure your skirt is, you, you, baby, you got to wear a different skirt. 
Like, you know what I mean? It wasn't a objectifying my body. It was, um, my dad saying, baby, make sure, make sure your skirt is, um, make sure you get a bigger skirt. And mama would be like, make sure you get a bigger top. And again, it's not, they weren't, my parents, for all, they have a lot of flaws. And we've come to terms with a lot of the ways that, I, that we have disagreed over the years and a lot of the, the things that I've confronted them about how, that I thought was harmful. I, don't honest, I honestly don't think that the way that they were, they weren't talking about my body so much as they were saying, well, they were talking about my body, but it was from their perspective, they were trying to protect me from the clowns that were out there. And they didn't make me feel bad about my body. I felt bad about my body outside the world, out in the world. I never felt bad about my body at home. I felt bad about my body. Me and daddy would have jokes all the time. Um, I, it's just, it was just different and I can't even, I won't even talk more about it, but it was, I didn't feel objectified by my parents. I felt objectified by everybody outside of my home. And I know you get that, so I don't even have to explain any further. But anyway, so, so I come to my realization that women's bodies were always objectified. But you know, the other thing that I didn't understand until I started, as I was leaving college and then kind of floating through, you know, moving to Syracuse and coming to Baltimore was that I was a participant then. So not only was I, uh, was I being body shamed and my body was being policed, but then I began to police other people's bodies. And one of the reasons why I had a toxic relationship or one of the things that I know, one of the ways that I know I was a toxic friend to my one friend when I talked about toxic friendships, and I can't even remember what episode I talked about that. It, it, was, it was recent. Oh, shoot, I can't call it. If I, if I remember it, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. But I would police, I would, uh, actually, we would police each other's bodies a little bit. But here's the, here's the way that I know that I policed her body. I can't even remember how she policed mine, but I definitely know how I policed hers. Because she, we were both thick girls, right? She was a little bit thicker than I was. And so she was into, toward the end of our friendship, she would share these, video, these pictures of, uh, with me of women who were plump but who were embracing their sexuality and they were black and white pictures and they were beautiful, right? And it was showing big black women in love with a partner, with themselves, whatever, right? It was just showing them in an intimate way that we're used to seeing. It was like those soft gray photo, grayscale photos that we see of skinny girls and like, and like the modern magazines, like the big time magazines. It's like that. Only it was a big girl. And it was like an everyday home setting. And I can remember feeling disgusted at looking at that. See, honestly, feeling disgusted at looking at that. At the same time, recognizing that some of those girls in the photo were my size. And so I would say something nasty about her or nasty about those women in that photo, knowing also that some of those women that she identified, she identified with. And so when I was talking bad about those women and had they had, they had sh- how they should have some shame, I was also talking about her. And when I recognized that, and that was, again, it was part of the dissolution of our friendship. Again, it was towards the end. We were both toxic to each other, but I'm just coming to the terms in which, the ways in which I was toxic to her. 
And I regret that every day. I still don't think we should be friends, but I regret that every day. Not every day. No, excuse me. When I think about her, I regret how I was still so, I had so much shame on myself and hatred about, just shame and disgust about the way I had been treated and still trying to come to love myself that I turned around and tried to make her feel bad about her. And there's no apology for that. You just, there's no apology for that. You just have to show about it and you can tell at this point. You know what I'm saying? If you engage with that person. And so there's just, it's where we were. That's not the thing that ended it, but that's certainly a part of the ways that I was just a terrible friend to her because I was terrible to myself. And so anyway, so while I still, I'm less, I'm less concerned about what people, well, I'm still concerned about what people think of me and how I'm perceived and what I'm wearing. I'm trying to, in the way that I can, embrace and be comfortable with other women who are freer than I am. And before you mention it, I I do, before you, I know this thought has already crossed some of y'all's minds. I got to tell you, a lot of the, so I grew up, I, I can't even say that I grew up in the church. I spent a lot of time in late middle school, high school era in church. But a lot of the churches where I went to were white churches. And a lot of those white churches weren't as body, they, well, there was body shaming, don't get me wrong, but like I was kind of in and out of them. You know what I mean? So I didn't have time to, for anyone to get close enough to me to shame me. It was from other places where I got shamed, right? And I recognize body shaming in the church now, and I try to call it out at every turn. And, and I just love the fact that in my religious community, as though there's still homophobia that I'm trying to fight, and others are trying to fight as well and continuing to just call that out every time and, and work beyond it um, and move people beyond it. I am always excited to see an elder an elder woman in the community talking about you not going to talk about nobody and what they wearing and you not going to invest in them. You ain't had nary a conversation with them, but you won't, you get the nerve to talk about what they wearing. See, that's what's wrong with it. That's what's wrong with y'all now. And I, I enjoy hearing conversations like that. And I know that's not the, the case everywhere, but I love that it's the case where I worship anyway. Um, getting back to the point, cause who I didn't lost it again. Um, so I'm working on celebrating women. When I'm saying women, I'm, inclu- I'm spelling it with an X. Women who are f- totally fine with their body and don't give a care in the world about how you, what you think about it, it don't matter none to them. And I, I'm, tr- I'm working on e- embracing that even more, which is one of the reasons why I like Meg Thee Stallion. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really love her music like that. Like, it's, uh, Captain Hook is cute. Classic. Ratchet. That one, I can't, I'm a, I'm a, what's happening? I'm a, oh shoot, I didn't forgot the name of the song. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, oh, I can't call it. Anyway, there's a couple of songs that I like. I guess that's the point. There's, there's a couple. I was trying to sing it. And I know I sound. Ooh, I sound, seems like every day, every day, 
I sound older and older. Anyway, um, I'm just out of touch in, uh, touch in a little country. Anyway, um, not that being country means you're out of touch. Oh, just let me, I'm going to go on. I'm going to move on. And you know what I mean. I'm not moving, I'm moving on. Anyway, but I'm trying, I, I, I think I like her for her. I don't think I love her music. Anyway, my hubby likes um, the song where she did on BET, where it was like the, the video. It looked like Mad Max. Whatever that song was, she liked it. He, he, um, he liked that. Anyway, and he made me watch it. And I'm like, okay, well, this cute or whatever, but what about her? I'm, and then I tried to impersonate what they were doing. He looked at me like I was weird um, because he was just like, you can stop it now. <laughs> Just come on over here and sit down. Anyway, which was rude, I think, and I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pull him up on it because you know I got a stretch, but I'm gonna get there. Anyway, um, so yeah, but I don't. It's I'm not. You know, I don't love her music. I love a couple of songs, but I more so love her persona or at least her image. I love I love what she's doing, and I appreciate it. I don't love all the Cardi B stuff, but I you know I appreciate it. And anyway, but people police her body too. Only seems like she's a little bit stronger she's also a little bit older than meg but anyway so when i think i even liked her i i even i I got that i digressed again um getting back to meg i think after this tour this incident with tory lanes i think that even further solidified my respect and support for her because it was clear to me and I've already said this, but she's been through so much trauma and it reminded me that she's a human being um, who all of this pressure does take a toll on you and how for as strong as she is, it's like she's, she, we expect her and I'm talking about we as in the public and many in, in, in the community expect her to be even stronger, expect her to walk this fine line, walk this tightrope, tightrope that doesn't exist for black men, that doesn't exist, of course it doesn't exist for white men and it barely exists for white women. Or, or, and I don't even mean to be unkind with that, it's just, it seems like black women, it feels very much like black women are always put on the tightest, shortest rope, highest rope, and should we slip, in either direction, in it, any way it goes, we're going to catch it. Unless we catch each other. And it's like, who, who we got but black, other black women? Who do black women have but black women? I would like to think we have more allies than that. I would like to think we have more supporters than that. But sometimes they do not feel like it. And certainly in this moment, now that we understand what really happened, that Tory Lanez absolutely did shoot her. And I hope charges are pressed. that it's like she can't win for losing. And so again, I say, I just pray that she gets the, the support that she needs. I pray that she, she's, she's she, I'm sure she has PS, PTSD. She needs, she needs counseling. She 100% needs, not counseling, she needs psychotherapy. Well, I don't know what she needs, I'm not a doctor. She needs, she needs support and a, a care team. She needs a care team. Whatever that looks like, she needs a medical professional to help her set up a care team. And after this, I need her live to be taken away, or at least I need her to not go live. I appreciate her sharing her story, certainly. This resonates with a lot of women more than me. Certainly as women have been in her exact same situation, 
And I appreciate her for sharing that part of her, that story, but I need her to stop sharing right now and I need her to heal. Um, it's great that she's doing all of this. She's got all of this success, but now I'm concerned more than I need to be because I don't know that woman in real life. But now I'm just concerned that she's not getting the help that she needs and what the heck is going to happen next, right? Because she needs it. She needs help bad. And anybody you know that's in that similar situation, they say they're okay, they're not. They need support, they need a care team, for real. Um, anyway, I'm just blown away by that. Um, whew, blown away by that. Anyway, so... I mean, I was going to talk about this all, it, all the time anyway, but in the spirit, I think I, I, I you know, a, something cleansing for me to do is talk about something that I just got a lot of joy out of, um, switching gears and just, you know, again, praying that Meg gets a care team, like a real serious care team that can support her and everyone else who was involved in that situation who cares to seek group support. Her and her friend. How about that? Her and her friend get care and support. Um, a movie that I, this just brought me a lot of joy that I was surprisingly sweet. I thought it was surprisingly sweet. It wasn't too much. It wasn't weird. It was a good movie and it was just my speed. And it was The Power Project. And it's starring Jamie, Jamie Foxx, and it's on Netflix now. I can't remember when it was released, but I'll share that in the next segment. I'll share all the details about its release and things. But what a sweet sci-fi film. Again, sci-fi and black people. Sci-fi and black people, that's a good cocktail for me. Um, and people of color, because there are people of color in here, but the primary subjects are um, people of color. And... It's a beautiful movie. It's simple, but it's beautiful. Um, I, wish it, I wish it were a series, to be honest with you. But I see why they made it in a movie, but it really should have been a series. Because you're not going to get Jamie Foxx in a series, but you'll get him in a movie. But this probably would have been better in a series. And I guess I'll talk about that depending on how strongly I feel about it. But anyway, this film is so beautiful. Because the essence is Jamie Foxx is a father who's trying to find his daughter. And the why he's trying to find his daughter is not super apparent, but it will be, it becomes apparent like midway through the film. And then there's um, another young lady who I'm gonna look at, a woman who I'm gonna look up because I cannot remember where she's from, but I remember seeing her in another film that I really thought was poignant, but I just can't put my finger on it right now and I'll look it up. But anyway, um, you know, she's in it and she is this young person who's just trying to make it. And they're both connected with each other. And there's a Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in it too. Um, And he's connected. Like I almost, I don't hate his character. I don't hate how, it, it feels like his character was in the film just right enough. Like it was borderline too much, but not too much. Um, Courtney B. Vance is in it, but he's not in it nearly enough, but that's okay because he's, uh, he's not in it nearly enough for me, but that's okay because he's in a hit, uh, series anyway. And I appreciate it in, um, in, uh, 
Lovecraft Country. So anyway, um, I'm fine with that because I love me some Courtney V. Vance and his wife, um, Angela Bassett. Duh. I almost forgot that woman's name. Anyway, I love both of them. Anyway, um, the film is really good. Again, I wish it were a series, but the film is really good because it involves sci-fi. And the sci-fi twist is really, really interesting because... I never would have thought of, well, not that I never would have thought about this and not that the concept has never been done before. It's just not been done this way before. And I don't know if it's based on a comic book or what, um, but this, con- this, this concept seems fairly fresh. Like I'm sure it's been used before. And it has been used before. Um, it's kind of like the Wolverine effect, sort of. But this is a little twist on it. And it feels modern because I love this wave of black movies where where the sci-fi is rooted in, there's racism explained. Racism and classism is explained in this, this the, while also explaining this science fiction twist. Why things are the way they are. And I like that because it's like blending your reality. It's a new way of blending your reality with this fantasy without making the reality feel like fantasy. That's the best way I can describe it. Anyway, but um, yeah, so I'm going to probably spoil the heck out of the film. So be warned, um, go watch it before you listen to the rest of this. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna get start out with the particulars and then I'm gonna go into the movie itself. Um, probably ramble a lot, cause you know how I do. Um, or if you're, this is your first time listening, I ramble a lot. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'll just go through the film and then, uh, yeah, hopefully you watch it. All right. Stay tuned. Okay. So... All right, so I'm just going to go into the particulars for the show as I normally do. And then I'm going to get into, oh, I'm probably going to spoil the heck out of this. Let's just, let's just be real. I'm going to spoil it, but I still want you to watch it. So um, hopefully, here's what you could do. You could pause this, watch the show in your leisure, then come back to it and listen. Or you can just let the thing play because you don't care about spoilers and You only have my show on to get you through whatever activity you're doing. Anyway, I don't care. I just appreciate you flipping on to this show. So anyway, I'm going to talk my talk and you're going to go on about your business. So it is the show itself. The movie itself, Project Power, came out this year, actually, August 14th. Um, Directors are Henry Joost, Joust, nah, Joost, uh, Ariel Schulman, screenplay by Matt Matson Tomlinson. Matson is your first name. Anyway, um, the budget was eighty-five point one million. Um, we have no way of knowing. I don't. I don't know. How about this? I don't know how you track a movie on a streaming service and what it brought, like what money it, it generated. The budget was eighty-five point one mil, but we don't know how much Netflix paid them. Well, I don't know how much money it made back. And I don't know how you calculate that. I, I and I, you listen, I'll stumble on it because I sure ain't going to do no research. But anyway, they spent 85.1 mil. Um, 
anyway, and the producer was Eric Newman. None of these names do I know, nor do I really, am I really interested about? Anyway, um, right now it has, it's six out of 10 on IMDb, which I don't really, first off, I'm sure quite a few folks do not subscribe to what folks, folks rating systems about movies and, uh, you know, films and TV. They just kind of use their own judgment as to whether or not a thing is good. Um, but anyway, IMDb has it six out of 10, which I think is a little low. Um, Rotten Tomatoes has it 59% and Metacritic has it 51%. Um, lastly, 85% of Google users enjoy this film. I enjoy this film and I think, so 59% on Rotten Tomatoes is certified fresh. It's like barely fresh though. Um, and, and ironically, it's like the same across the board. And I don't know if it's two things. I don't know if it's one of those things where a lot of folks decided that they were going to rate it a certain way. And then that's, what's driving the ratings to be middle of the road for the most part. Um, or if it's legit, I will say that just on the surface, before I get into the detail, this And I think I mentioned this in the intro. I think I might've mentioned this in the intro. I can't call it because I certainly didn't record the first part of this thing um, in the same day. So who knows what the heck I said. But anyway, I will say this. This was better as a series than a movie because it did leave some things to be desired. I feel like we got to the climax too quickly. I think there was some middle that we missed. Nevertheless, the climax was satisfying. I did want the climax to draw, draw, um, to be drawn out a little bit, which is why I think it should have been a series. Like, um, what was it called? Uh, Green Lantern. Um, what was the black one? What was the black one with that guy that nobody likes anymore? Because he said, is, transracial, is, is transracialism real because trans, being transgender is real? Oh, I can't call it. He was a black superhero. He was invincible. Can't call it, but you know who I'm talking about. That that actor said that dumb stuff. Um, just the dumbest, just the dumbest. Anyway, you can't be transracial. Like y'all know that you can't, transracialism is not a thing. Like I, it just popped in my head and I feel like I have to say it just in case somebody listening to this, somebody listening to this episode has either never heard of it before or is still questioning whether or not a person can choose to be can identify as another race. It's not a thing. It ain't. It's just not. Moving on. And then this Negro said it. I can't call the name of the actor and I can't call the name of the film. Dag. Anyway, but he was a, shoot, it don't even matter. It was a Netflix superhero thing where he was a black guy and it was mostly, it was a lot of black people in it. Um, Alfre Wooder was in it as Black Mariah. They called her character Black Mariah. Um... And that pretty brown-skinned man with the, had the nerve to have them real light brown eyes. He was a villain. Oh, he was supposed to be Jamaican in this thing. Ooh, just fine as he could be with them light eyes. Anyway, um, I've given you enough description for you to figure out what I'm talking about. It was canceled after like, what, two seasons, three seasons, something like that. Um, anyway... Oh, but anyway, my point, my point was that it, this thing should have been a series. And so I'm thinking the reasons why I think it was, it should have been a series 
is the same reason why maybe some critics are only giving it middle of the road or barely above middle of the road, just because there were some things missing. And it felt like either two things happened. It felt like perhaps the meat was there and some of it got trimmed a bit or it wasn't there to begin with and that things were added to make the story make sense. Anyway, so I'll get into those details later, but right now what I want to do is talk to you about the main stars of this thing, which, so Jamie Foxx plays Art, um, who we meet in an instant and maybe the early in the film, maybe the first 15 minutes in the film, we meet Art as Jamie Foxx's Art, and he's on a mission. It's clear that he's on a mission, and for what we don't know. Initially, we don't really know. Then there's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who we meet super early in the film as well. Again, within the first 15, probably 10 minutes, five to 10 minutes. Um, He is a detective with um, the New Orleans PD. This whole thing is set in New Orleans. And anyway, he's a detective with the New Orleans PD. And he is clearly busting up what is appears to be a drug sale. And we also meet um, Dominique Fishback, who, uh, sorry, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, before I move uh, over, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Frank. Um, Y'all know who Joseph Gordon-Levitt is. Google him if you don't. Um, Anyway, he's been in a bunch of stuff and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and then Dominique Fishback, who plays Robin. Now, I thought Dominique Fishback was in something... I I couldn't quite put my finger on what I had seen her in, but I knew I knew her face. More importantly, I knew I knew her accent because her accent sounded very, very New York to me. Um, Very much, she's a native New Yorker, not one of them fake New Yorkers where you put on the accent. Or you know when a person moves to a different location and maybe peer pressure or the fact that you just keep hearing the same thing over and over again, you begin to mimic how folks sound where you're where you're living. Anyway, she's it was clear to me from my untrained ear that she sounded like she was from New York. Like it didn't if she was putting on an accent, she was real, real good at it anyway. But I looked her up and she was actually from New York. She went to like NYU or some junk or some prestigious Pace University, which is in New York. Anyway, so she played which. Oh, shoot. I was looking at her stuff. She um. The reason why she was familiar to me is because she played Darlene on The Deuce. It was another, it was an HBO um, series and you know all about The Deuce. I watched that thing and I think I came close to making an episode about it when it first aired in 2017 because I watched it from the very beginning. I couldn't though get into the second season because it just went left for me. Um... I did not feel like, and I, and I recognize that I probably quit too soon um, in, in the character arcs, but I did not feel that they treated Darlene's character worth, uh, Darlene the character worth a darn. Um, again, Dominique's character, Darlene, didn't think that they treated her worth a darn. Um, and so, like for all the agency that they were trying to give her, they gave the lead woman more. And the... excuse me, the lead woman was played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Obviously, I think she was an executive producer on that show. And so, of course, you executive producing and you're acting, you want 
you want your character fully realized. And so they did. They gave her, baby, she was a full, a complete circle, her character. But like they left the other ones, in my opinion, they let them fall flat. Now, I don't know if they corrected that issue in the, the final, the last few seasons. I don't even know how many seasons the thing had, but I stopped. Like an episode, like two episodes into the first to the second season, actually, just because I couldn't, I couldn't get next to the fact that it was clear that she was fully well-rounded, she was super well-rounded, and that there were some other characters that I felt got better, not better treatment, but more time to get to know, or at least a different story as to why they were in this thing. And the black characters just were kind of like, oh, well, I came from a bad home or, oh, I just felt like being a bad girl and I ran away. And I'm like, that's real simple. And you should, you could probably give, give them more depth. And I certainly thought that Darlene's character could have gotten more depth. And again, I gave up on the show. I gave up on the show early in the second season. So I have no idea if they fleshed her out or not. They made it, they tried to make it seem like in the previews that they were fleshing her out, but I didn't stick around and I wasn't going to try. Anyway, so that's where I remember her from. And anyway, she's magnificent in this film, um, dynamic in this film. And so really, even though it's Jamie, Joseph and Dominique, all three of them are in this. And certainly the last person that I will mention, Courtney B. Vance is in it. And I love Courtney B. Vance. Um, shoot, I think it is it. And um, I don't know. Jamie Foxx's daughter, who's, whose name I cannot call right now. Dag, can't find it nowhere. Anyway, um, so the three of them, I, what I will do is I will s- just talk about the three of them because their chemistry was dynamic and there were some very funny moments. And again, this film was good. It's just, it really should not have been a film. It should have been a series so that you can take your time building out why Art, Jamie Foxx's character, was on a rampage. Tease that out longer because there's some, like what he was searching for and why he was out there moving the way he was moving. Um, that required some more teasing out than the, a movie could afford. Um, also, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Frank, required more teasing than the movie could afford. Like, there's some backstory that we don't get that you have to imagine. And I understand you don't want a film to give you everything. It's like a book that literally tells you every single description, every single piece of a person's life. Some of it you need to leave to the imagination of the reader in this case of the watcher. There's some things that you really can't spell out because it just makes it, it just ruins the magic for you of the film and using your own imagination and what films are supposed to do, which is to entertain and and get you to think about something new or take you to another dimension or take you to another place other than where you are right now. And the more thinking you have to do the more mundane thinking, well, the less, actually, no, let me take that back. The less thinking you have to do is less entertaining, right? So you don't want to spell the thing all the way out, right? And that's so that, you know, writers, screen, screenwriters and, and directors have a hard job because you don't want to put too fine a point on the thing. But at the same time, I just feel like Frank's character, Frank, the character Frank 
there was some more there there in the very beginning and what led him to take a turn in his career. And the turn is not a bad turn. It's a vigilante sort of turn. But like what happened before it? And Dominique's character, even Dominique's character, Robin, we get some backstory on her. They do spend some time fleshing her out, largely because I think that they wanted to draw a parallel between her. Well, I know that they wanted to draw a parallel between her and Art's daughter, who plays a key part in this uh, movie, even though we only see her for, what, 10 minutes? Um, She plays a huge part in this whole film. It's like she's... uh, the elephant in the room or the thing that everybody is kind of is aware of, but nobody wants to speak of or nobody wants to ask questions about. Um, and so we do get some backstory on Robin, but in my opinion, number one, not enough, not enough to empower her to move the way she's moving. Um, because what you need to know is this is at the, at the core of it is a sci-fi film. And what I've said from the very beginning, what I said, it, or what I remember saying in the intro of this episode is that they did this interesting thing where they took where I love about sci-fi films that are featuring black characters um, in a new sort of dimension where it's like real life, but real life with superpowers, right? I like that. Um, But anyway, so they took the real issue of what happened with communities in the eighties, uh, Black communities being flooded, black and brown communities being flooded with drugs and and guns and then kind of like almost like a social experiment, watching those communities implode and then turning around and pointing your finger, talking about, now, why don't you get yourself together? Why are you imploding like that? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's the American way. And so what they've done here is they've taken that concept of what we know to have happened in the 80s with the influx of drugs uh, and guns in poor black and brown communities, and they've turned it on its head and modernized it. So instead of simply drugs and guns to peddle, do whatever, I don't even understand quite, I still to this day don't understand why that was, why that happened in the 80s, um, other than it's clear that it did happen um, for a number of different reasons. And there were another number of different wars that were funded by the drug sales to begin with. But anyway, that's a whole nother conversation that I have several friends who can break that all the way down. And maybe one day I'll bring them on to break it all the way down in the context of like a film or something like that. But I'm not going to do that today. Anyway, but getting back to this. So the, the whole concept is built on there is a drug that has been created and is now let loose on the streets in New Orleans that when ingested gives the, the, the person who ingested it superpowers, but not necessarily superpowers so much as the powers of an animal in nature. So if a Giselle can run 85 miles an hour, Somehow or another, this drug harnessed that speed and put it into a pill form. And then the taker, if they get this, if it interacts chemically with their body, they get this particular 
power, they can then channel, once taken, they can channel the speed of a gazelle, but they can only do that for the duration of however long this drug lasts in their system, which turns out to be five minutes. And so that's a very arbitrary amount of time when you think about it, because most drugs stay in your system for longer than five minutes. But in this in this universe, the effects of this drug, or at least the the enhanced ability that you get with this drug only lasts for five minutes. So you have to do whatever the hell you're doing. You got to do it in that five minutes. And so what has happened is. Well, let me just back up and just say. I'm guessing that the reason why. So, well, let me just say this. They, the, they have figured out a way to harness all sorts of powers or abilities that animals could do. So I use the, the uh, example of the gazelle. There's also the aardvark that can has an extremely tough exterior that when they rub their, when they roll themselves up, it's, it's virtually impenetrable and it's a defense mechanism against things that would harm them. And so that is another power. That is another ability that this drug can harness. And there's one that, uh, they can combust, but not explode, or they can bust and not uh, combust and not catch fire. And they could be on fire for hour, for five minutes, right? Again, the, the duration of this ability only lasts for five minutes. There's another example that a person can be invisible um, or at least camouflage their whole body for the duration of five minutes. And, I, you know, I just kind of went with it because they kind of just laid it out like that in the beginning. And the way they did it was they literally saw, showed you humans who took the drug and then this power, this ability manifested itself and then they began to do whatever. So the, the invisibility or at least the camouflage um, ability was, was expressed in a bank robber who stole a bunch of money and then ran like hell. And so remember the octopus? The, uh, there's a, their octopus, octopi, at the bottom of the seafloor that when they activate this ability, they literally disguise, like at first they look technicolor until they settle in to wherever they are and then they match their body with the surroundings, the, the things that are surrounding them, right? So imagine this person who's running down a city street and running past windows and colorful buildings and billboards and things like that that are or posters and things and as they're running their body is literally taking on the colors of those things as they're running by so it's giving the appearance as if they're invisible what's really happening is that they're camouflaging and the body is reacting and instantly to the different environment that they're finding themselves in the surrounding that they're finding themselves in to blend into blend in basically anyway so that's a prime example so you know there's another where someone has um someone has remember i told you about the armadillo that their exterior is so tough that it's virtually impenetrable and so there's an example of a person being shot in the head and the bullet just crushing as if it was you know shot into a brick wall or something like that. There is certainly an ending in this person's face 
Certainly there are after effects, but nevertheless, the person is relatively unharmed. So, so they're giving you these examples while they're introducing Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Frank, that they're in, they're introducing Jamie Foxx's character, Art, that, um, even there in the first five minutes, we're introduced to Dominique's character, um, Robin, she's a dealer. That's the thing that you need to know. She's a dealer. Frank's a cop. You don't know what art is. And in fact, you really don't know what art is until maybe 20 minutes in. You realize he's not necessarily a dealer, but he's connected to the people who are ultimately pushing this drug to the streets. And he's trying to get answers for a particular reason that you don't know just yet. So anyway, but let me just pause. So I told you about the octopus's ability to camouflage itself and that was put in pill form. I told you about the armadillo and the, its ability to protect itself so tough that its exterior can, is, it can roll itself up in such a way that its exterior can be virtually impenetrable, right? Told you about the gazelle who can run faster than a human and faster than most cars can get up to 85 mile an hour, some ridiculously fast uh, speed. I don't think it's 85, but it's some ridiculously fast speed um, that a gazelle can get to. And anyway, so the drug can harness this ability. The thing about it is, so just just imagine that there are myriad other types of abilities that... Um, animals and, and nature can have that seems superhuman to us, but if you pull it in a pill form, and, it, and it's all very much survival, right? The ability to regulate your temperature, the ability, the ability to camouflage yourself, the ability to make it so that nothing can harm you is all about protection, right? Run really fast. It's all about getting away. It's all about survival, right? So just imagine you harness those abilities that in nature are mundane. It's all about safety. And you put them in a human being who then uses that ability to do whatever the heck that they wanted to do, right? So of course, the, the movie imagines that people would do all the worst things in the whole wide world. And so that's what we see in the very beginning. But we're not supposed to focus on that. And it's clear because, again, one of the people, one of the people who within the first 30 minutes, maybe even 40, but definitely 30 minutes, we get introduced to is a rapper, Machine Gun Kelly. Don't know any of his music. Apparently, he's supposed to be really good, but it was a big deal that he was in this film anyway. So he's in this film and he has the ability that when he takes his drug, he combusts. Um, and, but he doesn't burn up. It's just everything around him burns up. And I'm like, what animal power is that? What animal ability is that? Because the last time I checked, no ability, no, no, no animal can combust. I don't know if you know, you tell me, you leave a um, uh, comment in the show note uh, in the click, my, click the link in my show notes to take, go to my anchor.fm page and leave me a message. Cause I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it exists. But anyway, back to the back to the movie. The point was not to focus on those abilities. The point was to focus on why Jamie, why Art's character is trying to figure out the source of these drugs. Right. Who created this stuff? The other thing that we learn very early in the film, probably the first 20 minutes, definitely the first half of the film is that couple of things. Number one, you can take this pill one time and die from one hit. 
Or if you take too much, you can also die, right? Which is the same, which is true for hard drugs or quote unquote schedule one drugs in real life, right? Like sometimes because it's not regulated by any regulation organization, you kind of get what you get. And the quality can change in consistency, consistency from one hit to the next. So you could very well hit like fentanyl. Like some people have taken it for years, right? They prescribed the stuff. Doctors prescribed that stuff and folks got hooked, but they didn't die in early, right? But what we know is that sometimes you can take fentanyl and in one hit, you can be, your life can be taken, right? So anyway, it's real life. It's real life, but this element of fantasy is added to it. So anyway, um, but again, if you take too much of a thing, you can also get too much of that ability and die. Um, and we certainly have an example toward the end of this film when things go topsy-turvy, when someone is, as an example, given this drug and they have the ability to regulate their temperature, but it goes to the extreme and they suffer greatly and die because of this regulation power, right? Or this regulation ability. Anyway, so, but getting back to the why, why is, why is Robin selling these drugs? Why is Frank going so hard on a vigilante tip to get rid of these drugs and get them off the streets? And why, oh, why is Art running around trying to get to the top, trying to get this to the supplier? The answer is fairly simple. So what the, sh- the what the movie says is Robin is in this game in the first place because ultimately her mother's sick. She's not doing well. She has diabetes, which they make it seem like she has a debilitating case of diabetes. And I'm like, diabetes in its of itself can't take you out unless you generally are not taking care of yourself. So what else does she have? We don't know. We're never told. All we know is that she has diabetes and that she needs medication. Um... Anyway, so Robin is in it. She's a high school student. She's not really paying attention to school. She wants to be a rapper. But in the meantime, she definitely wants her mother to be well. So she's in this game to sell these drugs, to get this money to support her mother and herself. Frank is in, Frank is a vigilante because he's seen, he's seen the devastation that it has wreaked on his city. And he ha- takes possession of, uh, of it and calls it his city. And he wants to get these people off the streets. More so, he's not looking for who's selling, for who's dealing, for who is supplying. He's going after the, bad, the quote unquote bad guys that are taking it, which is a flawed approach, 100%. And it's wild, right? Super wild. Um, but that's his approach. He's going after the people... It's like he knows that there are higher ups that are that are paying off the police officers. And certainly he says this. Um, but instead of trying to figure out or at least organize a, a team to help him get to the top himself, he's just kind of going at it on his own and getting the people who are taking the thing, which is misguided, in my opinion. But that's his that's his story. Um, and so he's a vigilante out there trying to get justice. Here's the twist. He actually takes the stuff too. And I guess it, what we, what we learn, but we're not actually a hundred percent told is that he takes it to even the playing field. 
um, which is super dumb because what did I tell you a minute ago that you can take it and die with one hit or you can take too much and die too. But anyway, you got a drugged up police officer with the, with this ability and he's a vigilante too. So that's a cocktail for disaster, but it doesn't end in disaster in this show. And then you've got Jamie Foxx, excuse me, you've got Art, who is trying to get to the top. He's trying to find the distributors of this thing because he knows a lot more about this drug than what he's, than what we think he knows. And we slowly get to the root of the thing and then we realize that he understands this drug intimately because it was tested on him from the very beginning. And what we learn is that this whole intro, the whole introduction of the drugs in New Orleans is something like a test case and that it has happened all across, across the globe as a means to test how the drug reacts, how successful it can be, um, and different subjects and to make adjustments to the formula to be able to then sell it to the highest bidder to ultimately create the perfect soldier and the perfect army that is undefeated. You can't defeat him. And so, so Jamie is intimately, intimately connected to this. And so, excuse me, Art. And so is Art's daughter. Art's daughter is intimately connected because she inherited the gene manipulating chemicals that they put into Jamie to make him a super soldier. She inherited those when she was born only because they were naturally given to her. They mutated all of her DNA, not just some of it, but all of it. And she was able to then take it and change it and to develop a power beyond measure. And so Jamie is trying to get his daughter back from from this group of scientists, these people. And so there's a struggle that happens and you got to see the movie to see it. But at the very end of the thing, we see some grotesque manipulations of people's bodies as a result of the drugs. We see this push and pull struggle for Art to get his daughter back. Um, And you're rooting for Art the entire time. And then there's a point where Art, Robin and Frank unite more toward toward the end. Um, In the beginning, it was Art all by himself. And then it was Robin and Frank uniting together. Um, and then for a moment, it was Art and Robin, because again, what I said is they, they gave us Robin's backstory and they we got to see a lot about Robin because Robin was the stand in for Art's daughter until he was reunited, reunited with his daughter. Right. And so there were some tender moment, moments between Art and Robin um, that I think are pretty important. I wish there were more of them. Again, we would have gotten more of them had there been a series because honestly this thing could have run for like three or four seasons the way you could tease this thing out and the story that's there but nevertheless it's a movie so anyway so we get some tender moments between art and robin we also get some tender moments between frank and robin because what we know is that frank and robin had an allegiance 
largely because Robin was his doggone drug dealer. Um, if you're keeping it a buck, but there was also some, something, not necessarily sibling. Sibling's not the right word. Cause certainly, um, Frank is much older than Robin, but you definitely get the sense that he's not necessarily a father figure, but something like an uncle to her. He feels a protective sense towards her. Like he's protective of her. Um, and so we get some moments with them, but again, we could have gotten more in, an, in a series. Um, and then we get some, not tender moments, but moments of understanding between Frank and Art toward the end as a, as sort of a way as like, we both understand what it's like to protect something that you really care for. So Frank is trying to protect Robin because he cares for her. And Art is obviously trying to protect his daughter because he loves her and that's his daughter. And so again, lots of tender moments go around, but not enough to get us through to the end of this thing where essentially we're faced with the big bads, the big bad scientists who are essentially using uh, Art's daughter like a doggone ability cow um, because she can essentially the secret sauce is when she absorbed the the abilities in in utero, she um, was able to make her abilities last for however long she wanted it to last. She could turn it on and turn it off. There was no five minute limit with her because it was naturally in her. And so that is what the scientists were trying to harness. They needed her because they were trying to figure out how to develop the drug, manipulate it to the point where once they gave it to a person, they could literally turn it on and turn it off. Um, And so the idea is that if they were able to get out of New Orleans with her, that maybe not get out of New Orleans with her because they certainly came to New Orleans with her. They had already always had her. But um, that if they had her for longer that they would be able to, to master the formula, really fine tune the thing to be able to make super soldiers that never lost these abilities, but they could turn them on and turn them off. And so anyway, we have this very climactic end where Jamie Foxx takes a pill, or excuse me, Art takes the pill and then something completely astonishing and wonderful happens. And then his daughter, at the end of, the, of that astonishing and wonderful thing that he does, his daughter then uses her ability to do something equally as astonishing and wonderful. And then the movie ends with all of them kind of, you know, Art reuniting with his daughter. You get the sense that Frank and Robin are going to be okay and they're going to move forward and then um, they now have, Robin now has resources to be able to support her mother because somehow or another she absconded money from the big bad scientists, um, or Frank absconded the money for her, um, for the big bad scientist, or maybe it was art anyway. Um, and so anyway, the movie ends with, um, art and his daughter going separate ways and clearly Frank and Robin staying in new Orleans to maybe fight the good fight. Um, but there could have been so much great there, there for one, again, just on the storyline that this movie was running from, we could have had at least three seasons, two for sure. 
just with this two two eight episode seasons with just this movie alone with the with the stuff that they had here right the subject matter that they had here because you would have time to fully flesh out frank art robin um and maybe not get more of a story from about his daughter except that maybe we would be introduced to his daughter and maybe get flashbacks of their time together and all of that and then maybe in season two we would see more of his daughter and more of his daughter in real time. And then the push and pull struggle of her trying to leave as well as art trying to return to her because we don't really get a sense that, that, that his daughter ever really tried to leave, even though you know that that would be natural. She's a teenager. She's the same age or around the same age as Robin. And what teenagers have the ability to try to leave terrible situations, certainly captivity. So we don't even get to see that. And I imagine we would, in the first season, we would get to see some of that, but definitely we would see more of that in the second season. As So we would get flashbacks of Art and the daughter's time together with his wife and all of his time connected with the scientist in the very beginning. And then the second season, we would, you know, the, the first season would end with him finally getting to the big bads and then just barely escaping, right? And so the second season opens up and he's like, okay, okay, bet. That was round one. You got me on round one, but round two, we finna get to the kingpin. We finna get to the kingpin. And so that whole season is him and Frank and Robin kind of uniting, more so him and Frank uniting to kind of get this thing together, right? Um, and, and, you know, who knows how season two would conclude, but season three, definitely toward the end of season two, definitely in the beginning of season three, you got to see the big bad. You got to get him to go to the big bad, right? But um, yeah, so that's Art's storyline and that's his daughter's storyline. Robin's storyline is just all about her filling out the fact that she's got all this responsibility on her young teenage self. And you get to see more of her time with her mother, more of her time with her friends in school, but then also more of her time as a dealer and all the different myriad things that she sees. And one thing is true in the, in the, in the movie that we get a point where Robin's character says, I don't take this stuff because I know the side effects of this stuff. And it seems all cool and flowers and peaches and cream because you get these abilities. But number one, you don't know what you're going to get. Number two, you don't know if you're going to die from one hit. And so we would be able to get to see you know, how she's experienced other people experiencing this drug and the push and pull tension of her knowing that she should stop selling the drugs, but ending up, you know, sticking to it anyway because her mama's health. And we would learn more about the mother and more about what life was like before she got sick. And then, you know, that more dialogue about her knowing that her daughter is a dealer and, know, and trying to deal with that struggle. You know, we would get to see more of that. Maybe towards the end of season one, there would be this struggle. Like, you need to get out of this game. You need to quit this. We finna move up out of New Orleans because I can't handle this. I don't want nothing to come to you, right? And then season two is more of the same, only there's a switch now. Ma, I'm not dealing anymore, but instead I'm trying to take these people down. I'm trying to make you proud and all of this. And so there's a change in their relationship, right? And then Frank starts out, he's this rogue cop. Season one, he's all about vigilante justice, doing his own thing, but he's a, you know, pill popper too. And so we can see some of the adverse effects of him consistently pill popping, getting the pills from Robin and, and being called on it in his personal relationships, either with police captains or, or folks that know he's, he's popping him 
or people in his friend circle that know he's popping it, right? And then slowly you get to see the, you know, a group building relationship between him and Robin and how he's protective of her. And then you get to see them interact more. Um, and then towards the end, he finally meets, the end of first season, he finally meets Art and then they, they butt heads, they butt heads real bad, right? They like are button heads right up until the end and in the first season where, you know, they're like, oh shoot, we do have the something in common. We're out to try to get the bad guys, the big bad. And so season two, it's more of them working more together. Season one is them working apart and you get to know both of their backstories. But season two, it's them working together to try to get to the big bad. Again, they might not get to the big, big bad until like season three or the end, like the middle to the end of season two, but they get there and they get there together. And then of course, Robin is coming along with them. And then again, we see more about, we see more of Art's, daughter and things like that anyway I'm just spitballing right I'm not a screenwriter I am not uh, I, I don't do any of that I just watch a lot of movies and read a lot right but you can they could have done so much with 85.1 million dollars you could have made three seasons out of this one two for sure out of this one screenplay you could have did that and you could have, a lot more actors could have gotten some screen time you could have put a lot more people on but see y'all chose to just do a film and again, I still don't know how y'all making but money. Like, how do, how do films from Netflix make money? It's not like there's a box office. What, you get money out of subscriptions? What, you get money out of how many people watch the show? Maybe that's how they pay them. Maybe that's how they pay them. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, I just... And so I rated this thing. I said I liked this thing, right? And so I'm part of the 83% on Google users who enjoyed the film. But having said that, I still think that there are ways that it could have been better. And again, don't make it a film, make it into a series and go hog wild with it. Just go go wild with it. But I bet you Jamie Foxx wouldn't have G'd for being a part of a series. He's a movie star, right? So I bet you I would not be surprised if one of the reasons why it was not made into a TV show or a series is because you would never have been able to keep Jamie Foxx and keep paying him the amount of money that they probably paid him to be a part of this project for three seasons, eight episodes each, right? They, they, they ain't got it. They ain't got it. Um, even Netflix with their money, I'm sure they don't have Jamie Foxx money for per episode. Um, so anyway, I understand why. And here's the other thing. I think Jamie Foxx was the right one. I think that Jamie Foxx was the right art. I think that it was well casted. Um, I just wish we had more time with each character. So anyway, that's that. I have talked long enough and this episode is going to be a teach long again. And I promised myself that I would keep episodes down to like a minute, an hour and 10, no more than an hour and 20. And I didn't miss out on that. But anyway, um, yeah, go ahead and watch it for yourself and, and let me know, do you think it, it should have been a series too? And if so, how would you see this series going down, right? I am eager to know what you think. Anyway, that is the show for today. Thank you so, so much. Um, I've been looking at the analytics and a lot of y'all are listening. A lot of y'all are sharing and I appreciate that. Um, a lot of y'all are also going back to some of my old episodes and listening to them because I've been doing this for a long time now, um, a couple of years, and I have content for weeks. Um, and so maybe not weeks, but definitely days. Um, so yeah, just keep going back and listening to things and sharing things that you think are interesting to people in your circle. 
Um, and I'm going to keep doing my thing, right? I'm going to keep doing what I do because you guys are sharing and you guys are helping. If you want to rate this thing, just rate it favorably, five stars. That would be super helpful. And I'll read your review if you want to leave a review. But if you just want to leave stars, that's fine too. I don't care. Um, but rating it is how you, you know, rating it on places like iTunes is how, and Spotify, is how, um, you know, you rate, you help raise the visibility of this thing and you help me continue to do this thing that I do. Um as a hobby. So anyway, thank you so much for listening to this show on whatever platform you listen to, Spotify, Pocket Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Player.fm, Podcast Addict, um, Spotify, Google Play, Apple, all the places. I appreciate you so much for listening. Um, Yeah, until next time.